0: a short time ago, Amelia Earhart checked over every detail of her $80,000 flying laboratory in preparation for her round-the-world flight. This was to have been her greatest achievement, a sky dash of 28,000 miles. With her husband, George Palmer Putnam-on-Wright, she discussed the hazardous course which had been plotted for her by Fred Noonan, the navigator who embarked with Miss Earhart upon this great flight, a flight which was to have marked her retirement to aeronautical research. Then to a waiting world came news of disaster, as the plane failed to reach tiny Howland Island in mid-pacific. A British freighter, the Coast Guard and the Navy sped to the search, the battleship Colorado steaming out from Honolulu under forced draft. From California, the aircraft carrier Lexington, with 3,000 men and 72 planes aboard, races into the distant Pacific to join the greatest searching party in the history of aviation.
1: Welcome to Part 2 of our story on Amelia Earhart at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We owe every scrap of material used in both of these episodes to the investigative journalist whose tireless devotion to get to the truth has uncovered what we believe to be the true story concerning the last days of Amelia Earhart and Fred Newton. I have read all the comments directed mostly to our Facebook page at 1001 Heroes. Asking or telling us, one, why dig this up? Let them rest in peace. Two, the dock photo is a fake. Three, they crashed at sea. Four, this is political, and I don't like political stories. Five, they hadn't enough gas to make tall. And six, thank you. I think blogger, author, researcher Mike Campbell said it best when he wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, that we owe it to Amelia to tell the truth about what happened. She was a hero. I think both of them were heroes, and that's what our show is often all about. In this episode, Saipan and Beyond, I will relay the testimonies and opinions gathered by all the investigators as accurately as I can. Testimonies which place Earhart's plane in a Japanese hangar at Saipan, which place both her and Noonan in a Garapan jail in Japanese custody, and relay the stories of the efforts that investigators have made to get to the truth of how and why the governments of both Japan and the U.S., have stonewalled efforts to uncover the facts so far. To answer your comments, why are you digging this up? I'm digging this up because it is a mystery involving people I consider to be heroes who were very possibly among the first Americans to be killed by the Japanese in actions that are tied to World War II, specifically intelligence gathering of Japanese assets in the Marshall Islands. Cameras or not, they would have been asked to relay what they had seen over certain islands in the Pacific when they were captured by the Japanese in 1937. To the comments that the dock photo is a fake, I think we made it clear that if their plane went down at Mealy all, and the fairly recent find of a wheel cover of the Electra at Mealy tends to seal the deal that they did, they no doubt were taken to the Japanese intelligence HQ at Jaluit, which was on an islet called Imiej, I-M-I-E-J, for those of you who want to look it up an islet reachable only by ferry or seaplane. They would have been waiting on that same dock where the photo was taken for the ferry to take them to Emias, only this time, in a perfect world, with Noonan's head obviously bandaged and guards standing close by and no arguments about the date of the picture. The photo doesn't matter. From Emias they were likely taken by seaplane to Kwajalein and then to Tanapeg Harbor, Saipan, where witnesses saw them exit a seaplane and then get escorted to the Japanese HQ in Saipan, to the theory that they crashed at sea, maybe they did, and the two hundred plus witnesses that described them to an identical T in locations all along the route from Mili to Saipan were all sharing a psychic moment together. If it was covered up by our government at the time, they probably felt they had good reasons other than saving votes, which tends to make it less political and more of a pre-war time decision. Sometimes they have to make very hard decisions, and they're not always right and often there is very little time allowed to make those decisions. A window of time that, when closed, makes it too late to reverse. Gas? Miliatol is much closer to New Guinea than Howland Island, and slightly northeast of their planned flight direction. So gas wouldn't have been a problem had they flown there directly from Ley, New Guinea, or if they were doing some off-course reconnaissance. Another theory, which we'll cover later in this story, says that they were approaching Howland, but couldn't find it and turned back westward seeking the first available landing strip which would have been Jaluet, a thousand miles to their west but not impossible according to some their infrequent and very short radio transmissions lends credibility to the fact that they didn't want to be located by the japanese who were no doubt listening in but you couldn't put a fix on a 10-second radio broadcast so they kept them short or in the end when their equipment became waterlogged they used morse code Being a long ways from Howland, many of the transmissions were very garbled and hard to hear. To all of you chimed in with opinions and observations, thank you for doing so. And to those of you who said thanks, you're welcome. We will cover the, quote, crazier, end quote, theories about Amelia Earhart's life in and after Saipan for the simple reason that you really have to look at all the angles, whether you agree with them or not, whether you think they're fiction or not, if you're going to render an educated opinion, of what really did happen. I believe it's important to tell you something about Saipan in the years between 1937 and 1944, when Earhart and Noonan were brought there, and later when U.S. Marines stormed the beaches and fought a brutal, bloody battle against the Japanese Imperial Army on that island. Saipan is the largest island of the northern Mariana Islands, today a commonwealth of the United States in the western Pacific Ocean. Saipan is the second largest island in the Marian Islands archipelago, after Guam. It is located about 120 miles north of Guam and 5 nautical miles northeast of Tinian, from which it is separated by the Saipan Channel. Saipan is about 12 miles long and 5.6 miles wide, with a land area of 44.55 square miles. The western side of the island is lined with sandy beaches and an offshore coral reef, which creates a large lagoon. The eastern shore is composed primarily of rugged, rocky cliffs and a reef. The highest elevation on Saipan is a limestone-covered mountain called Mount Tapochu at 1,560 feet. Unlike many of the mountains in the Mariana Islands, it is not an extinct volcano, but is a limestone formation. To the north of Mount Tapochu, towards Banzai Cliffs, a ridge of hills. And we'll get to the story of how they got their name in just a moment. In 1914, during World War I, the island was captured by the Empire of Japan. The empire was awarded formal control of the island in 1918 by the League of Nations as part of its mandated territory of Nanyo. Militarily and economically, Saipan was one of the most important islands in Nanyo and became the center of subsequent Japanese settlement. Immigration began in the 1920s by ethnic Japanese, Koreans, Taiwanese, and Okinawans who developed large-scale sugar plantations. Under Japanese rule, extensive infrastructure development occurred, including the construction of port facilities, waterworks, power stations, paved roads and schools, along with entertainment facilities and Shinto shrines. By October of 1943, Saipan had a civilian population of 29,348 Japanese settlers, 3,926 Chamorro and Caroline Islanders, and 30,000 Japanese soldiers and defenders. Japan considered Saipan as part of the last line of defenses for the Japanese homeland, and thus had strongly committed to defending it. The Imperial Japanese Army and Imperial Japanese Navy garrisoned Saipan heavily from the late 1930s, building numerous coastal artillery batteries, shore defenses, underground fortifications, and an airstrip. In mid-1944, nearly 30,000 troops were based on the island. It was considered the best defensible location they had outside of the Japanese mainland and a perfect place to bring political prisoners. The Battle of Saipan from 15th of June to 9th of July, 1944 was one of the major campaigns of World War II. The United States Marines and United States Army landed on the beaches of the southwestern side of the island and spent more than three weeks in heavy fighting to secure the island from the Japanese the battle cost the Americans 3,426 killed and 10,364 wounded, whereas of the estimated 30,000 Japanese defenders, only 921 were taken prisoner. Weapons and the tactics of close-quarter fighting also resulted in high civilian casualties. Some 20,000 Japanese civilians perished during the battle, including over 1,000 who committed suicide by jumping from Suicide Cliff and bonsai Cliff, rather than be taken prisoner. They had been convinced by the Japanese occupiers that the Americans would eat them alive. Seabees of the U.S. Navy also landed to participate in construction projects. With the capture of Saipan, the American military was now only 1,300 miles away from the Japanese home islands which placed most Japanese cities within striking distance of United States B-29 Super Fortress bombers. The loss of Saipan was a heavy blow to both the military and civilian administration of Japanese Prime Minister Hideki Tojo, who was forced to resign. This history is also interpreted on Saipan, at American Memorial Park, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands Museum of History and Culture. After the war nearly all of the surviving Japanese settlers were repatriated to Japan. The capture of Saipan also meant that any Japanese forces south of Saipan were cut off from the Japanese mainland itself. The Americans wanted to capture Saipan at all costs, but the Japanese, equally aware of its importance, were also prepared to defend the island to the death, which is why so few Japanese prisoners were taken alive. The Battle of Saipan proved to be very bloody. At nearby Guam, which Japan had attacked and captured the day after Pearl Harbor, December 8, 1941, as well as the island of Marizo, the Japanese army began massacring villagers and executing American military captives in order to silence any stories that they might tell of the atrocities. On July 15 and 16, 1944, in Marizo, with the American forces approaching Guam near the end of the Japanese occupation of the island in World War II, Japanese soldiers massacred nearly 50 Chamorro men and women from Marizo in two separate confrontations in caves in the Tinta and Faha areas just outside the village of Marizo. The massacres are significant not only because of the tragedy of the two events, but because they led directly to a rebellion of the Marizo people in which they attacked and killed nearly all the Japanese soldiers in that area, thus liberating themselves. The Tinta and Faha massacres are two of a number of such atrocities that occurred at the very end of the Japanese occupation period. Other such events include the Fina Caves Massacre and torture and murders at Yigo, Tai, and Manengen. On July 15, 1944, the 800 or so Morizo residents were rounded up and taken by soldiers to the Gios River Valley. The Japanese commander of the area read aloud the names of the most influential citizens of the southern village which included 25 men and 5 women who were school teachers, the village commissioner, parents of sons in the U.S. military, a mother who refused to bow to the Japanese, and her two daughters, and other rebellious Chamorros. The 30 people were told they were going to be part of a work crew and were marched to a cave in the Tinta area to rest and spend the night. Soon after they went into the cave, the Japanese soldiers tossed hand grenades through the opening, killing many of them. The Japanese soldiers then took swords and bayonets and began stabbing anyone still alive. Still, by pretending to be dead, 14 of the Chamorros survived, to tell the story. The Chamorros at the Faha Caves were not as lucky. On July 16th, with almost identical circumstances, another group of men were marched to a cave in Faha. The exact details are not known, but it is speculated that the Japanese again used machine guns, grenades, and bayonets this time making sure no one survived to talk. It wasn't until days later that the Marizo villagers learned the full extent of the massacre. Thirty men who were considered some of the tallest and strongest villagers had been killed. When the Marizo people learned of the massacres, they were outraged. On July 20th, in broad daylight, a group of Marizo men stormed the Japanese quarters at Atate, another area of the village, and killed ten Japanese soldiers. Only one soldier escaped, fleeing towards the neighboring village of Inarajan. In April 1948, the victims of the Tinta and Faha Cave massacres were memorialized with a monument listing their names on a bronze plaque. The memorial still stands near the shore of Marizo. The American amphibious landing on the island was preceded by an intense two-day bombardment carried out by the U.S. Navy. Why do we include stories like this, you ask? Maybe to silence some of the constant criticism that we hear involving American presence throughout the world. The Americans didn't come to the Pacific Islands to slaughter and kill and rule. They came to free people. The American amphibious landing on the island was preceded by an intense two-day bombardment carried out by the U.S. Navy. Over 165,000 shells were fired at Japanese positions on the beaches that the Marines were going to land on. The first landings on Saipan took place on June 15, 1944 at 0700, and by 0900, 8,000 U.S. Marines were ashore. However, they had to fight every inch of the way as the Japanese defenders had placed barbed wire just behind the beaches, along with trenches and machine gun posts. By nightfall, men from the 2nd and 4th Marine Divisions had advanced about a half a mile inland and a beachhead of six miles in width had been created. The Marines fought off the Japanese counterattacks. The Japanese high command took the decision that the best way to support the island's defenders was to attack the U.S. at sea. This resulted in the Battle of the Philippine Sea on June 15, 1944, which proved to be a disaster for the Japanese as they lost three aircraft carriers along with many aircraft. Whereas the Americans could replace lost aircraft carriers because of their vast industrial base, the Japanese could not. The loss of the carriers also meant that the Japanese force on Saipan could not be resupplied or reinforced, as they were now effectively cut off. Realizing that they could not be resupplied, the Japanese commander on Saipan, General Saito, ordered that his men would fight to the last, along a defensive line around Mount Tupachu in the mountainous center of Saipan. Mount Tupacu and the area surrounding it was riddled with cave complexes. These proved an excellent base for the Japanese to carry out nighttime hit-and-run raids on the Americans. Casualties on both sides were high, and the Americans had to adopt new tactics to clear out the cave complexes. The weapon of choice to complete this task was the flamethrower, supported by the artillery. Flamethrowers were used to drive the Japanese out of their hiding holes or to kill them where they were. Those who fled faced an onslaught by artillery. The end of the battle occurred on July 7th when Saito ordered what was effectively a suicide attack by the remaining able bodied men under his command. When the attack started, these 3,000 men were also joined by many hundreds of the walking wounded and Japanese civilians on the island. Their attack took the Americans by surprise and the Japanese pushed through the Americans' front line. However, once it became clear what was happening, the Americans rallied, and the charge resulted in 4,300 Japanese deaths. What was the largest bonsai charge in World War II had little chance of success against the vast amount of firepower the Americans had on Saipan, but it was a clear indication of what the Americans would face the nearer they got to the Japanese mainland. The Japanese weren't afraid to use innocent civilians as cannon fodder. Saipan was declared secure on July 9th. Nearly 30,000 Japanese soldiers had died trying to defend the island. A small group of Japanese soldiers held out in the mountains until December of 1945, when they finally accepted that not only the battle, but also the war, had been lost. The Battle of Saipan also witnessed another phenomenon few American soldiers had seen in the whole Pacific campaign up to that time. 25,000 Japanese civilians lived on Saipan. They had been informed by the Japanese government of the untold horrors that would happen to them if they fell into the hands of the Americans, how they would be brutally treated. As a result, and some say as a direct consequence of an order apparently sent out by Emperor Hirohito, over 1,000 Japanese civilians committed suicide as the battle came towards an end. U.S. Army film clips exist of Japanese civilians throwing themselves off suicide cliff to escape the shame of capture and the fear of what the Americans would do to them. Once the island was secure, C.B. started to construct runways that could be used by the B-29s. No Japanese position was safe from heavy bombing once these runways were completed. The Japanese population on the mainland now faced an aerial bombardment that brought the war home to them almost on a daily basis. Japanese positions in the Philippines could also be attacked. As the special units took control of the airfield on Saipan at Alcito, a number of American Marines and the Army soldiers witnessed the presence of a Lockheed Electra locked in one of the hangars at the airfield. In all the accounts I have read, it seems as though at least one special unit was responsible for securing the Electra from sight as best as possible, and scouring the administration building for any pictures or documents that might have shown its presence there or the presence of Earhart and Noonan. Then someone test-flew the plane. For what reason? We still have to guess. That does indicate that it had been repaired, and in some cases, including the broken wing, rebuilt. Then clearing the airfield of witnesses, dousing the plane with gasoline, and burning it, then bulldozing it into a pit, with wreckage of captured Japanese planes, which were scattered all over the airport. In Part 1, we mentioned the fact that the Earhart on Saipan story first began to leak out when our American soldiers began returning from Saipan, and one of the better-known investigative journalists to compile these reports was Army Sergeant Thomas E. Devine, who authored the 1987 classic Eyewitness, the Amelia Earhart Incident. In this book, he recounts his Saipan experiences that exposed the pre-war presence of the American Flyers. In July of 1944, Devine and other G.I.s watched as Earhart's elector was burned and later bulldozed into a pit with tons of war refuse, destroyed at President Franklin D. Roosevelt's direction after its discovery at Saipan's Aslito Airfield. Devine witnessed the elector being towed out of the hangar, test-flown, landed, doused with gasoline, burned, and bulldozed into a hole which now rests below the tarmac or concrete of the Saipan airport, but not before he climbed up on the wing in the company of a fellow soldier and looked inside, seeing broken glass. As they climbed down, someone was taking their picture, and that photo still rests somewhere in the military annals for future diggers to unearth. It is very possible that these photos, as well as any items turned up or graves interred in those first days, were done so under the orders of the 441st U.S. Army Intelligence Corps. It has been written that Captain Tracy Griswold, 18th Marine's 2nd Marine Division, supervised a gravesite dig at the exact spot that a witness reported the execution of a blindfolded white woman who was driven to the spot by a Japanese guard driving a motorcycle with a sidecar, where a hole had been dug, then ordered by her Japanese guard to get out of the sidecar whereupon she was allowed to remove her blindfold out of respect and then shot in the back of the head and buried. It has also been reported that Amelia's husband, George Putnam, was sent to Saipan to be there at the internment of that grave and given the remains thought to be Earhart's in a metal box. There is no proof existing anywhere that that happened. Only hearsay. The PFC's Everett Hansen and Billy Burks, who did the digging ordered by Captain Griswold, did provide some testimony as to their being there at that time. Like many others, Divine felt that our nation was not prepared to confront Japan in 1937, and if Earhart's abandonment on Saipan by the popular president became known, FDR's political future would have turned to ashes. Soon after FDR learned of the Flyers' capture, likely through Navy intercepts of Japanese radio communications, the Earhart matter became a sacred cow, the truth deeply hidden until Fred Gurner revealed it to a fascinated nation whose outraged call for Congressional action was, as we stated in Episode 1, totally ignored. Other journalists turned up witnesses to the destruction of Earhart's Electra at Saipan. One famous book retelling stories of Earhart and Noonan in Saipan was With Our Own Eyes, Eyewitnesses to the Final Days of Amelia Earhart, written in 2002 which presents the accounts of 26 Saipan veterans whose Earhart-related experiences corroborated Devines. Ten years later, Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last, Mike Campbell's expansive follow-up to With My Own Eyes, overwhelmingly confirmed the truth with many new findings, witness testimonies, and documents. Links to those books are found in our show notes. Mike Campbell spent nine years as an active-duty Navy print and broadcast journalist and 21 years as a Navy civilian writer and Air Force public affairs officer, retiring from federal service in 2008. Originally from College Park, Maryland, after meeting Thomas E. Devine, author of Eyewitness, the Amelia Earhart Incident, in 1988, Campbell became convinced that Devine, Fred Gerner, Paul Briand, Jr., and other Earhart researchers were correct when they proclaimed the presence and death of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on Saipan after their disappearance in July 1937. Writes Campbell, whose internet blog titled "Earhart blog gives a wealth of research to interested searchers. He quotes, Convicted murderers are regularly sent to their deaths based on the smallest fraction of the evidence truth at last offers that places Earhart and Noonan on Saipan, far exceeding any objective standard of proof. Devine's personal experience on Saipan, followed by his first book and then his co-authored book with Mike Campbell, led to some amazing testimonies. Here is the experience in Saipan that started Devine on the trail to finding the truth behind Earhart. According to Devine, he came ashore on Saipan in July 1944 as the top NCO in the 244th Army Postal Unit and went with his commanding officer to Aslito Field shortly after their arrival. There, he said... They encountered a group of enlisted men, evidently on guard duty, outside a hangar. Their commander seemed military, but wore a white shirt open at the collar. Devine said he overheard conversation, indicating that Amelia Earhart's plane was inside the locked hangar. He said he asked one of the Marine guards if this was true and received confirmation that it was. Devine said he later realized that the man in the white shirt was none other than Secretary of the Navy James V. Forrestal. Devine recalled that later in the day he met one of the Marine Guards who said, They're bringing up Earhart's plane, but then changed the subject. A few hours later, Devine said, he saw a civilian plane fly over with two engines and double tail fins. Devine said he could clearly read the plane's ID number, NR16020, which he did not at the time know to be the number on Earhart's Electra. After dark, Divine said, he and another member of his unit quietly returned to Aslido, which he had been told was off-limits. Here, he says, he saw the plane that had flown over. He said they walked up to it, tried unsuccessfully to get inside, and again saw the NR16020 number on the tail. He said he saw about a dozen cans of fuel nearby. He also mentioned they were photographed leaving the plane, which no doubt raised some suspicions among those guarding the secret. After returning to his bivouac, Devine said he heard a muffled explosion at Asleto Field. Going to a vantage point, he said he could now see a blazing fire. He concluded that the plane he had visited earlier was now aflame. Devine was convinced that the plane, although not destroyed, was burned to make it impossible to identify it as Earhart's. All this happened, Devine said, on his first day on Saipan in mid-July 1944. He kept the matter to himself until 1962, when he sought permission to visit Saipan and unearth Earhart and Noonan's remains, whose location he thought he knew, based on what he'd been told by an Okinawan woman. In trying to convince the Navy that he had valuable information, he recounted what he said he had seen at Aslito Field, and later built eyewitness based on this story and his pursuit of Earhart's grave. When Devine published his book in 1987, his version of events at Aslito was the only evidence that they had occurred, In eyewitness, Devine closes with a plea for anyone to contact him who might be able to confirm what he reported, even if they merely held memories in the shadows. This appeal produced a number of responses, notably from Henry Duda. Duda had been on Saipan in 1944 as a PFC in the 2nd Marine Provisional Rocket Detachment and said he had seen a man who others identified as Forrestal. Duda became a vigorous supporter of Divine's efforts to solicit more eyewitness accounts from former servicemen. Some two dozen accounts were published in 2002 by Mike Campbell with Divine in the book titled With Our Own Eyes. Some of these accounts related to Earhart's and Noonan's graves and other aspects of Divine's overall story, but several men reported seeing a civilian airplane at Aslito or in the air. Some of the accounts are quite vivid and detailed and some servicemen report recognizing or being told that the aircraft was Earhart's. Here are excerpts from just a few, and you'll have to get the book to catch the rest. Is in The show, The links to both books are in the show notes. From With Our Own Eyes, Eyewitnesses to the Final Days of Amelia Earhart, Mike Campbell with Thomas E. Devine. Robert Sosby, 1st Battalion, 20th Marines, 4th Marine Division. Sosby said he saw the Electra before and during its destruction. Quote, on or about D plus five after our infantry had captured Alcito the night before, then were driven off only to capture it again. Our CO was called up to fill a gap between our infantry and the 27th Army infantry. The truck's carrying us stopped off the opposite side of the runway from the hangars. This two-engine airplane was pulled from the hangar to off the runway where it was engulfed in flames from one end to the other. I can still remember exactly the way it burned how the frame and ribs because it was visible it was about half dark it burned approximately 15 to 30 minutes then a letter from erskine neighbors the best i can recall the plane was pulled on a field by a jeep the plane was facing north after the plane was parked and jeep moved a plane came over real low and on the next pass he strafed the plane and it went up in a huge fireball We were sitting on the west side of the airfield, about 100 yards from the plane. We were on higher ground. As far as I remember, the men that pulled the plane on the field and us guys from H&S 8th were the only ones there. And this last one. After landing on Isley at 2.30 p.m., Japanese soldiers were running around the airstrip. One killed himself in the cockpit of a P-47D with a grenade. I slept fairly well in the hangar, and in the morning... We wandered over to a large hole in the hangar wall facing the other hangar. This place was sighting from the hangars, maybe 65 yards apart, but close enough to get a good look at a familiar aircraft outside the other hangar. My eyesight was acute, and what I saw was Amelia Earhart's airplane. The next morning I went to see it, but it was gone. In this post titled, What Mystery? She Died on Saipan? Submitted in 2012 by a friend of a Saipanese islander, the author provides a number of links that help unravel the story. Speaking of body searches, there is another one that has been going on since July 2, 1937, although it's no mystery for those who give credence to eyewitness reports. Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, according to Saipanese villagers and American military eyewitnesses, ended up in a Japanese jail in Saipan. A friend of mine lived on Saipan for 30 years. It was common knowledge that Earhart and Noonan were interred in the local Japanese jail and died and were buried on the island. Saipanese women, who had been children at the time, described having seen a thin, sickly white woman, always under guard, with short hair like a man, and a burned arm and hand. The white woman gave one of them a ring with a white stone in it. Locals can still lead visitors to the cells in which Earhart and Noonan were held and can point out the spot where they were buried. Several then-young Marines on Saipan gave eyewitness accounts, one of them with a buddy, blew up in a safe and found Earhart's briefcase containing her passports and visas. Another saw a silver, single-wing, two-engine airplane matching the description of the Electra in a hangar in Saipan in 1944. His squad was ordered to destroy it. Fifty years later, he told a skeptical listener, It was the middle of the invasion battle. Don't you think I'd remember a man in a suit and his insistence that they burn the hangar and a perfectly good airplane and never tell anyone what we saw? A third decoded the incoming message that Amelia Earhart's plane would be destroyed the next afternoon. He and a buddy hid and watched a jeep tow the plane out onto the airfield. Marines climbed into the plane and poured three or four five-gallon cans of gasoline All over it. Then a P 38 flew over it and fired tracers at it from behind, causing humongous fire and smoke. Neither the American nor Japanese military have ever admitted any of this, but these facts are well known on this island. Looks like Earhart may have agreed to do a little spying for the U.S. before World War II, and that the government covered it up. For all the 30 years I lived on Saipan, I always thought that Amelia died in Saipan because of what the old folks would say. My former mother-in-law, now deceased, also talked about this. I never thought anything different. I was really surprised to read that there is this big mystery about her death. I thought, what mystery? They know where she died. On Saipan. And in this Internet entry made by Allied Artists, a company which produced a movie on Earhart, they are requesting information on her briefcase, which was discovered in a safe on Saipan by Marines, and second leather valise, which was turned over to naval intelligence at Kwajalein. One of the mysteries is Amelia Earhart's briefcase. A Marine in World War II claims he discovered the briefcase in a safe in the war zone during the invasion at Garapan, Saipan. Robert E. Wallach, an 18-year-old machine gunner at the time, joined a dozen soldiers who were assigned to search for stragglers, among the rubble of bomb structures, they found a metal safe, the only object, still intact. They crowded around hoping to find jewelry, cash, pearls, or gold. According to Wallach, we thought we would all become Japanese millionaires. The safe was locked. One of the dozen rigged the door with explosives and blew the safe open. Each man grabbed an item and ran outside to examine his prize. Wallach's souvenir was a brown leather attache case with a large handle and a flip lock. It was full of papers. After Wallach's initial disappointment, he began to sort through the contents. There were maps, passports, travel documents, and permits. They turned out to be the personal papers of Amelia Earhart. Stunned at his discovery, Wallach turned the papers over to an officer in the Navy. Since then, tragically, the briefcase and its evidence has disappeared. For 50 years, Wallach has been held under the weight of government silence in the disappearance of Amelia Earhart's briefcase. The Navy and the Marine Corps both have shunned the evidence of what Robert Wallach found. In his retirement, he has contacted countless veterans who served on Saipan, but all the contacts have led to dead ends. Wallach is very adamant about what he found. Researchers at Allied Artists have contacted Robert Wallach, and we were very much impressed with what he had to say. He believes that somewhere, someplace, Amelia Earhart's briefcase is sitting in storage in a Naval or Marine Corps warehouse with the words, Top Secret, stamped on the box. In the affair of the missing briefcase, there isn't one briefcase that is missing. There are two. As Earhart traveled around the world, the second briefcase is believed to have contained canceled airmail postage envelopes. The canceled stamps on the envelopes were to be used and sold as a fundraising venture. As Earhart traveled around the world, the second briefcase is believed to have contained canceled airmail postage envelopes. The canceled stamps on the envelope were to be used and sold as a fundraising venture for Earhart's world flight. With every opportunity, Earhart took her briefcase full of canceled envelopes to the local post office. There she had the local postmaster hand cancel each of the envelopes with an airmail stamp. In February 1944, on Kwajalein at Roy Namur, Three Marines entered a Japanese barracks and found a room outfitted for a woman. A.W.B. Jackson said they found a suitcase containing feminine items and a bound, locked book lettered, Ten-Year Diary of Amelia Earhart. They turned the suitcase and the other items over to an officer, and that was the last they heard of it. Also at Kwajalein, in February 1944, soldiers discovered a briefcase in the ruins of the airport. The briefcase was embossed with A.E. in gold leaf. This was reported originally by Fred Gerner in his book The Search for Amelia Earhart, published in 1966, and later repeated nearly 40 years later by Eugene Sims, writing for the Kwajalein Hourglass, a publication of the U.S. Army at Kwajalein, which we included in Episode One. In World War II, the island of Roy Namur, spelled R-O-I-N-A-M-U-R, was a Japanese air base with a large landing strip. In her capture by the Japanese, Earhart evidently left a trail in her imprisonment and the ensuing flight to Japanese headquarters in the Central Pacific. Researchers at Allied Artists believe the trail led from the area of the Marshall Islands to the island of Roi-Namur, then by long-range seaplane to Saipan and imprisonment at Garapan. None of these artifacts have ever been recovered. Allied Artists request that if any of our website viewers have information on the whereabouts of any of these artifacts, this article reads, please contact us at info at lostflightgroup.com as soon as possible. It would be a great help in solving this age-old mystery. And I haven't checked to see if that website is still up. If it isn't, you can always send it to 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. It would be a great help in solving this age-old mystery. As to the witnesses and accounts related to others by witnesses, which critics properly label as second- and third-hand accounts. There are many that attest to Amelia Earhart's and Fred Noonan's captivity on Saipan. Beginning with this one from Earhart researcher Fred Kinney on LinkedIn. A couple of days ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Jim Crowder. Jim recently retired from McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. After graduating from Virginia Tech, Jim spent 1970 to 1973 in the Peace Corps. He was assigned to Majuro in the Marshall Islands and later served on Saipan in the northern Marianas. Jim is the only person known to have spoken to four witnesses who either saw Amelia Earhart or her airplane. Two of the witnesses were in the Marshall Islands and two were on Saipan. One of the Saipan witnesses was a Spanish nun. Jim met her while both taught at Mount Carmel High School on Saipan. She told Jim that in 1938 she was incarcerated in the old Japanese Garapan prison a minor infraction, something the Japanese did quite often, the Catholic missionaries. During exercise time in the Garapan prison yard, she saw Amelia Earhart on several occasions. Though not allowed to speak, they would exchange nods and a smile. Numerous locals on Saipan claim to have seen the flyers, including the father of Stanley McGinnis Torres, a former Saipan congressman. He's quoted to say, My father was 23 at the time and working at the Japanese seaport, moving drums of water for a Japanese company that took water from the big spring east of the port, Torres says. That dock area is where he saw the two tall white people under guard. He couldn't say that the Americans he saw were Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. He couldn't say for sure what happened to them, but it makes sense to me that the prisoners, whoever they were, were either killed here on Saipan or sent on to Japan for questioning. In November 1970, homemaker Michiko Saguta, who had lived in Saipan during the 1930s and 40s, told the Japan Times that she overheard a conversation involving her father, a former police chief in Saipan, stating that Earhart had been shot by the Japanese military. She was the only Japanese national ever to come up with witness testimony. And this account runs counter to the report provided a few minutes ago in this episode that the suspected grave site of Earhart was interred in 1944. According to a well-known investigator named Dick Spink, who, along with Les Kinney, was involved in the recent History Channel special, the bones of the couple in question were exhumed from a burial site in Saipan in 1968 during another search by a team of investigators from Cleveland, this team called the Kothera Group and sent to a lab at the University of Ohio for examination. Results confirmed the bones belonged to a Caucasian male and female. This was in the days prior to DNA matches. Following breakthroughs in DNA testing some years later, however, researchers returned to the lab only to find those bones had mysteriously disappeared. The burial site was later covered with a concrete slab. I think that was part of a huge cover-up, says Spink the U.S. went to great lengths to cover up any evidence at all about Amelia Earhart. Whether it was or not, we'll never know. Critics of the Saipan capture theory point to scant hard evidence and an almost predictable pattern of anything else that could be considered even remotely circumstantial. Two very impactful witnesses of Earhart's captivity were Saipan's Joaquina Cabrera, who washed Amelia's clothes and was said to have been moved by Amelia's kind eyes according to local historian Genevieve Cabrera. And Anna Magafina, who as a seven-year-old, watched as a tall white man was beheaded while a white woman stood by and then ran in terror before she could learn what happened next. On her way to and from school, she used the path that ran just outside the little cemetery which sits not far from the Garapan Jail and is surrounded by an iron fence. A burial spot just outside that cemetery has been the grave location that was interred twice. Here's another interesting piece, a letter from Les Kinney to Dr. King, who had been critical of the findings of the Kothera group. Kinney responds to Dr. King's statement that while living on Saipan, he, Dr. King, often found human bones in his flower bed. that Saipan had been seeing human occupation for thousands of years. There were bones everywhere. Kinney's response, Dr. King, I would describe your answer as inadequate and flippant. Burks, Henson, and later the Cathera Group didn't randomly dig up a piece of earth on Saipan. The grave location was known to be a few feet outside a known cemetery complete with fence and headstones. The site had been mapped and identified. Neither of these two grave digging episodes was conducted in a random, haphazard manner. Neither digs were initiated by wandering around Saipan looking for a likely place to dig in as you have suggested. In both digs, maps were used to identify the location. The nearby markers used for reference by the Kothera Group were supplemented by Anna Magoffna's knowledge of the execution site, a location she walked by daily on her way to school before the war. According to later interviews of Burks and Henson by the Kothera Group, Anna Magoffna led the Kothera Group to the same spot they dug up in 1944. The location was a few feet outside the cemetery and near the markers previously described by Burks and Henson. I have the original film, picture shoots, and audio tapes of the Kothera dig. The Kothera group included an amateur archaeologist who had been involved in professional digs in the past. It also included a seasoned police lieutenant who was completely familiar with crime scene sites. The film shot at this dig would convince you the dig was professional. Dr. King, you mentioned a lot of things could have chewed up this particular grave to cause the larger skeletal remains to become missing. Could you explain what they might be? The Kothera group found a few dozen pieces of small bones and a gold dental bridge in the 1968 dig, but no skeletal remains. Could it be the skeletal remains unearthed by Burks and Henson in the rudimentary dig of 1944? Was the reason only bone fragments were left at this gravesite in 1968 I don't mind you posting this response on your web blog or linking it to the TGAR webpage as you did with my previous response. Then there are a number of reports that Earhart was incarcerated in the concrete jail at Garapan. There are many photos on the Internet showing the old structure and the cell that witnesses saw her in. She was in cell number one while Noonan was in cell number four. We will discuss in a moment a picture of the small administration office at the jail showing two uniformed Japanese guards, one seated at a desk who appears to be an officer. On the desktop sits a 35-millimeter film canister and a camera exactly similar to the one Earhart had brought with her. Also in the picture, American-made pencils are visible. There are also reports that she was transferred from the jail at one point to the three-story hotel Kobayashi Royukan nearby, where the Japanese had set up command headquarters for Garapan. Witnesses reported seeing her walked daily from the jail, to the hotel, presumably for interrogation. This was early in her stay. We can assume as days went by, she may have had her own suite there, complete with guards inside and out, judging from the witness hanging clothes outside that saw her sitting on the veranda outside her hotel room. Fred Gerner originally reported that Jesus Salas, a farmer on Saipan, and presumably the Salas interviewed by ONI officer Patton, who was sent to Saipan to investigate for the Office of Naval Intelligence in the 1960s, was put in Garapan Prison in 1937 and remained there until U.S. Marines released him in 1944. He told Gerner that a white woman was placed in a cell next to his for a few hours in 1937. He said his guards told him that she was a captured American pilot. Salas said he saw her only once, but his description was similar to those given by others on Saipan for the American woman. He recalled that after a time, the woman was removed to a hotel in which the Japanese kept political prisoners. Author Vincent Loomis spoke with Florence Kirby and Olympio Borgia on Saipan in 1979. They told him that their grandfather had been in prison for three months in 1937 in a cell that was not far from the one that was said to be occupied by the American woman pilot. Loomis visited the ruins of the prison and saw the cell that tourists are told as the one in which Earhart was held. In 1981, Loomis returned to Saipan and spoke with Ron Diaz, then 65 years old. Diaz said he had seen a white woman in the back of a truck with Japanese men with her. He did not recall seeing a white man with her. He said he had been told by friends that the woman had been taken from the water and that he was also told she had been taken to Garapan Prison. Loomis in his 1985 book Amelia Earhart: The Final Story reports that Anna Villa Gomez Benevente of Saipan said that while visiting her brother at Garapan prison she saw an American woman captive there. She was an American. I saw her at least 3 times. Ms. Villa Gomez Benevente also said she washed clothes for the woman while she was housed at a hotel in Garapan City. In the apparently verbatim 1977 transcript of an interview with Ms. Villa Gomez Benevente by Fred Arnold Bendowski. She reports washing clothes for the woman during her hotel residence, but refers to the jail only when rather aggressively led to do so by her interviewer, probably still closely remembering the threats that had told her not to talk about the jail. The June 10, 1992 Bangor, Maine Daily News published a story about former Navy nurse Mary Patterson who was stationed on Saipan in 1946 and reported being told by an unidentified Chamorro informant of an American woman and man who were held and tortured at the Garapan prison. These are just a few of the reports collected that place a white man and woman in the Garapan jail in 1937 on Saipan. The total number of interviews, when put together, is staggering. The only hard evidence we have is a small steel door with A. period, Earhart and the date July 19, 1937, carved into it. Scratchings on her cell walls containing her initials and her astrological information cannot be considered proof. According to Mike Campbell, as well as a letter Ms. Deanna Mick wrote to the National Air and Space Museum's Thomas Crouch on April 4, 1994 and 2012 correspondence with the senior author. It was given to Ms. Mick by Saipan resident Ramon San Nicolas when Ms. Mick and her husband returned to the mainland after running a charter air service they had set up in 1978 on Saipan. Author-researcher Divine apparently regarded the door as evidence that Earhart was imprisoned at Garapan, identifying it as having covered a small rectangular food service opening let into the barred front of a cell. There is also a picture that you can see at www.saipanpictures.blogspot.com which is labeled the Old Saipan Jail in Garapan with some very interesting detailed notes appearing below it. Reading. After a decade of searching, where many before me had given up, this is the only pre-Battle of Saipan picture I could find of the old Japanese jail. The photographer is unknown and most likely died during the battle as did the Japanese commander sitting at the table. After enhancing and enlarging the object outside the window, I could see it was a cross from a grave at the cemetery that was across the street before World War II. Given the distance and angle and a pre-war Japanese map, I am reasonably sure I have located the foundation of this office. This picture was taken before June 13, 1944, at which time all of Garapan fell in rubble from American naval shelling. Other interesting objects in this photograph. The word on the phone, in English, headquarters. Written on the book in the hands of the Japanese man standing. Police notebook. In the hands of the Japanese commander, an American pencil with an eraser. Very unusual. On the desk, an American 35mm film container. Very strange. How could they have gotten these items and perhaps even the camera that took this photograph. In the early days of the Pacific War, a thousand miles south of Saipan, an American fighter plane pilot was shot down and captured by the Japanese. When American Marines arrived at this jail years later, they found the pilots recently, one day before, beheaded body in the courtyard and his flight jacket in a cell. Could these be his items? Could he have been the one who took and developed this photo? Others believe Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were also brought to this jail. Could this be the connection to those items? I could keep going, but if you read this far, then I congratulate you. I debated for years whether I should put this picture and story on the Internet. The writer says, let me know what you think. Author investigator Briand reports that Josephine Blanco Akiyama told him she saw a man and a woman dressed like a man in Japanese custody at Tanapag Harbor. This would have been the day they were flown in from Kwajalein, having been kept at Jaluit, then transferred to Kwajalein and flown to Saipan by seaplane. Reaching Tanapeg Harbor, Saipan, sometime around July 17, 1937, the American woman who looked like a man and the tall man with her were led away by the Japanese soldiers. During his first visit to Saipan in 1960, Fred Gerner interviewed over 200 Saipanese, the testimony of 13 of them could be pieced together to support Mrs. Akiyama's story. Prior to his second visit, Gurner heard from Thomas Devine, who related the story, later recounted in his own book, that he said he'd heard regarding the grave of a white man and woman who came from the sky a long time ago and were killed by the Japanese. Devine supplied Gurner with photos from Saipan and detailed maps indicating the purported gravesite. On his second trip, Fred Gurner also spoke with Matilda Shoda San Nicolas, who related her story about the white woman who had been held in the hotel and had reportedly died of dysentery. He also spoke with Jose Pangilinan, who said he had seen the man and woman, but not together. He also said that the woman had died of dysentery, but that the man had been executed. They were buried together, he said, in an unmarked grave outside the cemetery south of Garapan City. He had not witnessed any of this, but had heard of the events from the Japanese military. He said that the exact gravesite was known only to the Japanese. After his return to California, Gurner was contacted by Alex Rico, who told him of acting as an interpreter on Saipan while there is a CB in 1944 and 45. He said that several Saipan residents told him that the Japanese had bragged about capturing some white people and bringing them to Saipan, where they were buried near a native cemetery. He indicated that there were two native cemeteries. He wasn't sure which one was being referred to. According to Davidson's account, in 1967, Vincente Camacho showed Donald Kothera and his colleagues from Cleveland three photos said to depict the gravesite identified as Earhart's. The investigators then spoke with Anna Magoffna, who related that while coming home from school one day when she was seven or eight, she saw two white people digging outside a cemetery with two Japanese watching them. When the grave was dug, tall man with the big nose, as she described him, was blindfolded and made to kneel by the grave. His hands were tied behind him. One of the Japanese took a samurai sword and chopped his head off. The other one kicked him into the grave. She did not mention the death of the woman, but she knew the location of the grave. Loomis repeats the story that the white woman being held at the Garapan Hotel died of dysentery in mid-1938 as related to him by Matilda San Ramon. That would put it at about a year after she was brought there. Despite the stories they had collected in the marshals about Earhart and Noonan being taken to Japan, in the second phase of his investigation, Buddy Brennan and his team became convinced that Earhart had been executed on Saipan late in the war. According to Brennan, a Chamorro woman named Nieves Cabrera Blas said that she had personally witnessed Earhart's execution by firing squad. She said Earhart had been blindfolded, but the blindfold was torn away as a gesture of respect before she was shot over an open grave and hastily buried. Blas showed Brennan the location, where his team then excavated with a backhoe and turned up a piece of cloth that Ms. Blas interpreted as the blindfold she had seen. According to Brennan's associate, Mike Harris, the location was obviously a dump area containing animal bones, medical ampules, and aircraft pieces. In a letter to the editor of a newspaper in Tampa, Florida, dated October 12, 1991, Edward Lawden, an Army combat photographer on Saipan in 1944, says he was directed to photograph a small clearing just north of Garapan that contained several Japanese grave markers. He reports that his film was then taken from him by officers, whereupon the markers were removed, the area doused with gasoline, and burned, and then bulldozed. An officer then cautioned him to forget what he had seen. And when he asked what it was all about, the officer whispered, Amelia Earhart. And here's an interesting story from our National Archives found at www.archives.gov slash news slash topics slash Earhart, where we'll find a couple of interesting documents gathered by our intelligence and released as declassified one being that photo of the dock on Gallhewit Island, Amelia Earhart July 1936 records of the Army Air Forces you'll find in there, a letter from Amelia Earhart to President Franklin D Roosevelt regarding her world flight that was uh, November 10th, 1936, the US Navy report of the search for Amelia Earhart, the radio log of the last communications of Amelia Earhart, and a copy of a um, a copy of a letter that I found very interesting. This report dated January 7, 1939, on information that Earhart was a prisoner in the Marshall Islands. Records at the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, RG 38, Entry 81, General Correspondence. This one was declassified in 1977. It's a great story. I'll read it. It's a copy of an old typewritten letter marked now declassified. It was from France, written 7th of January, 1939. Report of Amelia Earhart as prisoner in Marshall Islands, marked 908 Intelligence. M. Happenot, the chief of the far eastern section of the French Foreign Office, allowed the writer to read some papers found in a bottle washed ashore near Bordeaux. This communication will in time be delivered to the American embassy here. The entire story follows. On 30th October, a Ms. Barrett, aged 37, while walking on the beach near Solce-sur-Mar on the Atlantic coast just south of the mouth of the Gironde River, found a bottle of about half-pint size, stoppered with a cork, over which wax had been poured. Found in the bottle were a lock of chestnut-colored hair, a paper with the words, in French, God guide this bottle. I confide my life and that of my companions to it. And a third paper, all of which were delivered to the gendarmes, who eventually sent them on to Paris. The third paper mentioned above contained on one side, written in French, the following, I have been a prisoner at Jaluit in the Marshalls, by the Japanese, in the prison there. I have seen Amelia Earhart, aviatrix, and in another cell, her mechanic, a man, as well as several other European prisoners, held on charge of alleged spying on large fortifications erected on the atoll. Earhart and companion were picked up by Japanese hydroplane and will serve as hostages any Japanese. I was in prison because I disembarked on Mili Atoll. My yacht VeVio, it looks like Vevio, capital V E V E O Sunk. Crew, three Makis killed. My yacht, twenty six tons, sailing ship, was equipped with radio. On the other side of this paper, the story continues. After having been kept long time at Jaluit, I was forcibly enrolled as Stokehold head on board Nippon, looks like Nori, bound for Europe. We'll try to escape them when ship gets near to coast. Carry this message to gendarmes immediately so that we can be freed. This message is to be thrown overboard probably near what looks like Suntander and should arrive in Brittany towards September or latest October 1938. This is message number six. To have a good chance of freeing Miss Earhart and her companion, and also other prisoners, police should arrive incognito at Jaluit. I will be with, next word, indecipherable, and if I succeed in escaping, because if Japanese are asked to liberate the prisoners, they will say that some are detained at Jaluit. One must be tricky. The hair is Miss Earhart's and will prove the veracity of this story and that I have seen Amelia Earhart supposedly dead. This bottle will serve as a float for a second bottle containing some objects of Miss Earhart. I am writing on my knees because I have only a little paper, some left over when police took fingerprints. And then this note, the second bottle referred to has not been found, but the bottle found has on the bottom the following stamped inscription. VB2. Now, when you think about it, this letter, forwarded to our intelligence no later than 1939, placed Earhart on Jollywood Atoll, long before anyone thought that maybe she had survived her crash, and placing her on Jollywood Atoll, which only in the past years has been thought of as a likely spot for her to have crashed and been taken prisoner. This letter, found in the Office of Naval Intelligence, declassified documents lends even more credence to the fact that they survived and were being held prisoner at Jaluit. A very, very interesting document, to be sure. As to our suspecting a government cover-up, a growing number of investigative journalists, none from the major media complex, which seem to report whatever best fits their template in order to boost readership with headlines such as Bone-sniffing dogs sent to Nekomororo to discover Earhart's castaway remains, or Joliet dock photos debunked, have reported facing numerous difficulties with accessing files on Earhart's disappearance. It seems as though a security blanket was thrown over any official correspondence, verbal contact, or the sharing of knowledge as to Earhart's survival or captivity. All items belonging to Earhart or Noonan that were turned over to intelligence remain in closed safes, somewhere in the American government military complex, or they have been destroyed. Items that include briefcases, valises, items found inside the plane, pictures of Earhart taken by the Japanese in Saipan, the four-page Japanese report that Gurner said he was allowed to look at in President Kennedy's White House office, the bones and DNA that the military interred on Saipan in 1944, according to the two PFCs who dug them up, and the list goes on. Author Randolph Brink, who believed that they were on a secret spying mission with a newly designed, government-provided airplane, asserted that the government holds extensive files on what really happened to Earhart and Noonan that remain secret to this day. Many other researchers make similar claims. And now to the crazy theories that surround Earhart's disappearance, none of which we subscribe to here. And I can hear the grinding of teeth as serious investigators who have spent years trying to get to the truth are listening in and believing that we are cheapening the story by adding this stuff. That's not our intent, and I think you can judge from what we've just shared as to where our opinions lie. They, meaning Earhart and Noonan, were both heroes who agreed to do something above and beyond for their country. They were caught and later killed by the Japanese. The American government knew and never made an effort to rescue them that we're aware of anyway. Now for the theories just flying in from left field. What do a retired Air Force colonel, a Catholic priest, and a Hollywood producer have to do with Amelia Earhart? They all believe she was secretly rescued from a Japanese prison, returned to the U.S., and assumed the identity of banker Irene Bolum until her death in 1982. In 2003, Colonel Roland Rennick published Amelia Earhart Survived an incendiary book that relied on former Seton Hall president and Catholic priest James F. Kelly's claims that he had helped bring Earhart back to the U.S. after the Japanese surrendered in 1945. The book also included Hollywood producer Todd Swindell's photo overlays, which proved, in quotes, that Earhart and Bolum's features were congruent. And this theory, she was abducted by aliens, I'm not even going to give this one a paragraph, but it does seem like a handy answer for a lot of the mysteries we have covered. And this one. Amelia Earhart was captured by the Japanese and forced to broadcast their propaganda during World War II as one of the Tokyo Rose personalities. And there were 15 of them. During World War II, 15 English-speaking women broadcast Japanese propaganda over the radio to taunt, traumatize, and confuse American soldiers. The Americans called these women Tokyo Rose. After Earhart's disappearance, rumors began to spread that she'd been captured by the Japanese and was being forced to read their propaganda. According to one account, her husband, George Putnam, personally investigated the reports, but could not recognize his wife's voice among the many Tokyo Roses. According to another, he said it was her voice, but very weak. And this one. She eloped with her navigator, Fred Noonan, to escape her fame. Earhart was known not to be a fan of her own celebrity. In 1943, a film called Flight for Freedom used that knowledge to suggest that Earhart was in love with her navigator, Fred Noonan, and that she had faked her death to elope with him. The film focused on a fictional protagonist whose story echoed Earhart's but influenced dozens of real Earhart biographies. There is no solid evidence that Earhart was having an affair, and it was her husband who pressured her to take Noonan on the flight. But the romantic notion that Earhart faked her own death to follow her heart resonates to this day. We haven't talked much about that film, that 1943 film, Flight for Freedom. But I highly recommend that uh, that if you can find it, give it a look because it's, it's quite interesting. And actually it follows a lot of what we've been talking about in these two episodes. Very, very interesting film, Flight for Freedom. And then... Okay, hopefully you'll be too busy following up credible leads and buying the books that we're going to list for your research in our show notes. We thank the investigative journalists who have done so much work and risked so much and put up with so much through the years to try and get to the truth in this story. I think they would probably all agree that we owe it to Amelia and Fred to get to the truth, and our hopes, collectively, I hope, are that one day they'll both be recognized as true American heroes. We would like to thank our sponsors, Blue Apron and Zip Recruiter, for being with us today. They take no sides in the story, preferring to stick with their mission of providing the freshest and best ingredients and recipes for us home chefs and helping all companies, large and small, to find the best employees fast. Links to their special offers are included in your show notes. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. The reviews have been coming in hot and heavy. And we'd like to mention a few here. This one titled, Great Stories, by OKCFK from the USA. Interesting and educational. Keep them coming. Thanks. This one from Lisa in Canada, just a few weeks ago. Wonderful podcast. Well-produced, well-narrated, and well-rounded. 1001 Heroes has something for everybody. Highly recommended. And this one from Starlin. In New Zealand, this is by far one of the best weekly shows. I really enjoy learning stuff once a week on my walk home. This one from DRML Sherwood in the USA. Great podcast, interesting topics. I love this podcast. The information is interesting and the research is thorough. And this one from New Mexico Gal just recently. Entertaining and educational. Great series of podcasts. And from Tony101, a lot of fun, enthusiastic host, and interesting stories. Check it out. And from History Liker, refreshing. No doubt that this is one of the top five podcasts on my phone, one of the ones where I wait for Sunday nights in order to listen to it as soon as it releases. You will not be disappointed. And from Thias 1980, best one. I love it. Fun and educational. Thanks to all of you for your reviews. Very, very much appreciated. 1001 Heroes is a proud part of the 1001 Stories podcast network, which includes our other two popular shows, namely 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and 1001 Stories for the Road. We're currently expanding our Twitter listings, so take a minute to join us here. Twitter address, at 1001podcast, where just recently we've started to announce upcoming episodes and give you a behind-the-scenes look at the day-to-day operations behind one of the podcast world's best-loved independent one-man podcasts. Our website is www.1001storiespodcast.com and our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. So many stories to tell, and we couldn't do it without your support. Taking advantage of our sponsor offers, posting to Twitter and Facebook emailing us at 1001 podcast at gmail.com and sharing our show by telling others or sharing our posts at Facebook and Twitter. Our goal is to grow from 5 million listens a year where we are now to 10 million over the next six months, and we're asking for your help. Thanks again for all those kind reviews, and thanks for being with us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.